0: 6 verse 15. If you have a bulletin, you might want to follow along with the outline. Nehemiah 6 verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elu, in 52 days. Wow! 52 days? Yep, 52 days. By the way, Josephus in his commentary that was written around the first century, said, no, it actually took two years. No, it took 52 days. It's right there. William Carey, that great missionary, said <clears throat> of his biographer, quote, if he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. End quote. A plotter. How do I envision a plotter? I envision a plotter <clears throat> like a bulldozer in first gear. That's how I've always. And Kerry was a plotter. No question. But I'm going to present to you today that uh, Nehemiah was a plotter. He was a plotter, no matter what came his way, what obstacle, what opposition he kept moving forward. Are you a plotter? Are you a plotter? Or more like a, f- a flash in the pan. I trust you're not a sprinter. I, I hope you're a marathoner, right? You know, you say, what do you mean, he just, no matter what? Well, go back to chapter 1. Remember his brother? In fact, we're going to see his brother again in chapter 1, verse 2. Hanai, one of my brothers, he's talking blood here, blood brothers. He told them of the state of Jerusalem. He got the burden, verse 4. He started praying. He didn't just pray, though. Look at that, verse 1, verse 4. He sat down and wept and mourned for days, and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know what the first obstacle in his life was? God, I see the need, but is this a responsibility that you want me to have? That's the first obstacle. You see needs around you, but is God saying, I want you to meet it? In fact, that's been one of the things uh, that we've been talking about in counseling downstairs. That series has been so good that I really want to run it again. Every person in this church needs to know about how to not only see change and grow in their own life, but helping others. But one of the uh, models that we were looking at, one of the diagrams, if you can picture a circle within a circle, or a circle, and then another outside circle. And the two circles represent this. The inside circle is, Lord, what have you called me to do, my responsibilities, The outside circle beyond that is, Lord, these are things I care about, but maybe you're not calling me to meet. Do you see the difference? By the way, if you get your circle too big, you become inefficient and ineffective because you're just running all over the place. I think the first thing that Nehemiah had to determine was, Lord, is this something you want me to do? (laughs) I, I understand the state of Jerusalem, Verse 3, it's in great trouble and shame, but is this something that you have me to do? And he, he prayed. By the way, at this point, it was around November, December. If you have a John MacArthur study Bible, you should all have his John MacArthur study Bible. No, um, he, he kind of lays this out. Um, 446, Chislov. it's November, December. He's praying. Remember how long he prays? till March, April. That's, that's about four to five months later. He's praying, he's fasting, he's asking, he's getting direction through that and finally, the king said this. You know, why are you sad? And and he's able to tell about the city. Let the li- king live forever. That's chapter 2, verse 3. Why should not my face be sad when the city, that's Jerusalem, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? Notice, he doesn't use the word Jerusalem. That just is like, it would have put like, not fear, but irritation in the king's heart at that point. He didn't use the name Jerusalem, just the city, you know. But then he, uh, he prays, verse 4, and basically the king gives him his request. About four months later. Now, he has to go. He has to go from Susa all the way over to Jerusalem. Takes about two months. It's not an easy. That's another obstacle. Obstacle one, God, are you calling me to do this? Obstacle number two, I've got this guy, he's the king of Persia, and he doesn't normally let his key men, cupbearer, go and accomplish a task for the, for you. But he does. He releases them. Obstacle three, he has to travel there. Two, three months. You know, I'm assuming camelback, you know, and, you know, depending on the route. If he went direct, it would have been about two months. If he went up over, about three. It was a little bit easier traveling, but longer. He gets there. It's in shambles. He goes out and he looks at the wall. That's the second part of chapter 3, or 2, excuse me. Finally, he gets his plan in, in place, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. He puts himself within the people. Come, let us build the wall. And they start building. They, get, they jump on board, they become stakeholders. They own this thing. It's what every leader wants to see his people do, right? Own it. They own it. But notice how many times in, in the end of chapter 2 he uses the word us and we. I'm in this with you. And so they build the wall, chapter 3. But then chapter 4, 5, and 6, as we have been studying, what is that? Another other obstacles, Opposition. Sanball and Tobiah and all the rest. And so he's, he's hit another... And by the way, during this, chapter 4, 5, and 6 is where he kind of brings us back. During the building of the wall in those 52 days, these are some of the things that were happening. They were trying to disrupt the people as a a group. There was tension within with usury, chapter 5. But then also chapter 6 talks about the sandbell and Tobiah, and we're assuming the rest. I actually made accusation against the leader himself, because you see the word I versus the we in chapter 4. Why do I just paint this off in the last couple of minutes? Paint this picture for it. Because there was obstacle after obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. But we get to chapter 6, verse 15. And the wall was finished in 52 days. Something that was considered impossible was done that quickly. By the time that wall is done, we're into September. So November, December, by the way, they use in Jewish calendar. So we, we figure it's taken about nine months. Nine months from the time that he hears of the uh, of uh, uh, Jerusalem being in disarray to the time where the last stone is placed, it's only nine months. Because when God's people work together, great things can happen, right? Even the impossible. By the way, this this um, mile and a half to two and a half mile, depending on. See Jerusalem. Uh, um, expanded and shrunk at certain times. They think that the the wall itself was about two and a half miles uh, in circumference at this point. It had been in disarray for 150 years, more than 150 years. A long time, ever since Nebuchadnezzar had gone in and and totally destroyed it. Took the people, you know, 70-year captivity. Now they are starting to come back. First under who? Little quiz. Who Who was the first leader to bring them back? Starts with a Z. There's a rubber, rubber bull. bull. <laughs> Who's the second leader? Starts with an E, Ezra. And the third one is Nehemiah. So there's these waves of people. By the way, this rubber bull had, had gone uh, almost 100 years earlier. Okay, They had been there, settled. But now, finally, finally, after almost 150 years, finally, the, the wall is done. By the way, you would think that, first of all, the first thing that's going to happen is celebration and dedication. That's not what happens in this chapter. And and we want to go through some pieces, just kind of pulling off some uh, things that we can learn. I mean, finally, the wall, you'd think they would be celebrating and, you know, and dedicating. And by the way, that does happen a couple chapters later. But right now, he steps back and we learn some things. First of all, verse 16. And when all the enemies heard of it, all the nations, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, and they perceived... That this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know, the first thing that we learn is this. Nehemiah gave glory to God. That is not that easy. I can't tell you how many times I have prayed, Lord, help me through the message. I get done with the message. I greet people. I go home and I forget to say, Thank you. But he gave glory to God. Why? Because... Look at this, those, the enemy, <coughs> the nations, they were afraid, whoa, <laughs> who they're serving, he's powerful. They had perceived or understood, the enemies had recognized, they had discerned, and they had admitted that the work that had been accomplished was from the help of our God, our God. Jehovah is the God of Israel. Would you admit that at times... No, excuse me. Would you admit this, that if there's anything truly good in your life, truly good, that it's, it's because of God? Right? If it's truly good... But again, how, how do we convey that to a watching world? Do we have to run around, as some perhaps do, and always saying this, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, almost in a superficial way, How do we uh, present to the world that what is happening in our lives is really from him and not just from ourselves? It's not just luck. You know, well, John was lucky. He married a really great wife. What? Great wife or luck? Which one are you amen to? Okay. And I would say amen to that too. I really did. But, God, God, How can we live in such a way that God gets the glory for the things that are accomplished in our life? And I think one of the best ways has just been seen through Nehemiah, this whole series. This is what? Lesson number 13, I think. We've been seeing this over and over and over and over again. You know what it is? Every time he went up against an opposition or obstacle, he turned to God. See, his whole life, his life in some respects was, we've been studying about crises <laughs> the whole time. Every t- ever since he, he heard about Jerusalem, and then now he's got to face the king. Now he's got to do this long journey. Now he has to get a group of people on his side, you know, which are the Jews that are living there. Now he has to deal with all these, you know, non-Jews that are trying to destroy him and kill him. And yet through the whole thing, he keeps... Focusing on the Lord. We see it in his prayers. We see it in how he uh, arranges. We see how he even talks about our awesome God. I think it's in chapter 4. He keeps drawing people back. And the three C's that we looked at last week come together here. What do, I, what do I mean, the three C's? In other words, this crisis in his life, this continual, he showed character. That's the first thing. You want to give glory to God, make sure you have character in your own life. You've got to have character. You see the character, because again, his prayer life, how even in a moment he'll just call out to the Lord. I think I mentioned last week, but this is worth mentioning again. A man has not more character than he can command in a crisis. It's in the crises that the real you is showing, and if the real you is depending on God, maybe hanging on to him as though you think your own uh, Fingernails, but at least you're hanging on to God, then who's getting the glory? Who's getting the glory? You know, you've been in the storm where you say, and you would honestly say this, and I had peace that passed all understanding. You ever been there? Multiple times. I had the peace that passed all understanding. I, didn't, I shouldn't have had peace, but I had it. Why? Because you're walking with the Lord. You're in crises, and your character said it's only Him. See, his character came directly from his practice of godliness and his close communion with the Lord. He was walking, as the New Testament says, in the Spirit. His dependence was on him. That's why he prayed. That's why he kept going back to the Lord. So his character, you want to glorify God, it's got to start with your character. But then the second thing is your confidence. Notice their confidence. This is the enemy, verse 16. I go back to there. It says, they fell greatly in their own esteem. In other words, literally that means, quote, were cast down in their own eyes. <laughs> they were like hung their head and say, I just can't believe it. Fifty two. De- this guy comes in, 52 days, it's done. What, what happened? I don't serve a God like that, but he did. See, they lost their confidence, the New Americans. That's being of the enemy. It's like an air being deflated out of a balloon. But again, because he had character, he had confidence, he had consistency. (laughs) Why? Well, because he had commitment and um, conviction. Oh, those are all C's. I'm not trying to be that. Uh, The the point is, his conviction drove him to have that confidence and consistency. And then finally, he had courage. 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 God will get the glory if, in the process, we show character, confidence, and that we don't fear. God will get the glory. See, I think He sets us up to glorify Him, but in the process, we kick and we scream and we point our fingers and we get angry, and the very thing that could have brought Him great glory ends up being, you know, like it was all about me. Do you know how that works? So, again, He had faith that could move a mountain. He had the courage to be able to say, even though there's obstacles, and though there is opposition in his life, he never said this, well, Lord, I guess it's not for me. See, sometimes we look at the trials and say, oh, that's the door closing. That may not be the door closing. That may be God saying, listen, let me show you how great I am. Do you see how close fast we can close the door? So, his character, his confidence led to courage. One man said this, armed with this fortitude, he turned obstacles into opportunities and outward trials into personal triumphs. Yeah, he's such a great boy. I'm going to, I'm looking forward to going to heaven. I'd like to meet, Paul. Well, obviously we're going to worship Christ, but I'd like to meet Paul. But one of the guys I'd really like to meet is Nehemiah. He has taught me much about my own personal life and struggles. So that's the first lesson we learned. The second one is this. Even through his achievements, he does not allow success to blind him to his continuing problems. Now catch that. Sometimes success blinds us to the, the problems that we still have. You know, it's almost like we're running a race. Yeah, we, 52 days, the wall is done. All the obstacles are behind me. And so he wants to remind us. By the way, he's doing this. Ch- after verse 15, he's doing something. Because I started asking, what are you doing, me? Am I? Why are you telling us all this stuff after the 50? Because you would think that the last verse would be, and the wall was accomplished in 52 days. No. No, what he's doing is this. Hey, listen, guys. Make sure when you finish, you give glory to God. Also, make sure when you finish, whatever project you're doing, you understand that you're in progress. This is not the finish line. You know when the finish line is? See Jesus. That's the only finish line. As long as we're here, you build, you keep building, you keep progressing. He is going to be doing something different, though. We're going to start seeing a revival in chapter 8. Right? Revivals coming to the people. They've been rebuilt. The wall's been rebuilt, but now the revival comes. But he wants to remind us, you know what, there's still problems. One commentator said, Many a careless Christian has won the war, but afterwards lost the victory. You, uh, in human nature, uh, human institution, there's a, there's a, a general uh, principle where it goes from um, organized to disorganized, right? Well, to fundamental to liberal. You just look at any of the schools. Princeton started, Harvard started out theologically very sound. They're not there now. Churches. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be a sad day if uh, you know the Lord uh, did not come back for let's say twenty five years? And twenty five years, so was it two thousand fourteen? That's uh, two thousand thirty nine. Is that correct? <laughs> Help me out, Dale. Dale, I'm I'm drowning here. Um, 2040, and someone's mentioning, you know that had in Bible Church up on the hill? I actually heard the preacher say that Jesus Christ was not God. Oh, it would never happen here. What do you mean? It happens all over the place. It happens all over the place. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to be on guard. And so what does he say verse 17? Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. To so the, the nobles are sending letters to the enemy, Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. And Tobiah's letters came to them. Their, their communication, correspondence. Verse 18 For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Why? Because he was the son in law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, And his son, Jehonahan, <laughs> why can't they just say John and Sue? <laughs> had taken the daughter of Meshulam. You got it. The son as his wife. (laughs) I'm just going to leave it at that. See, he's he's married into the Jewish. He's not Jewish, but he's married into the Jewish, with Jewish people. He's got connections, connections. So he's married to a daughter that's a Jew. His son is married. There's connection, by the way, Meshulam is one of them that in chapter 3 verses 4 and 40 says that he helped rebuild the wall so he is one of the ha- he's one of the builders the enemy is sleeping inside of the gate look at verse 19 and they spoke of his good deeds in my presence they were speaking of Tobiah's good deeds in my presence in other words Propagandizing, right? Like he's a great guy. Oh, you think that Tobias is a bad guy? He's not a bad guy. They're trying to, you know, get a and reported my words to him. They were a spy, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. I mean, why did he add all that? Because he's trying to make the point. Even though the wall is done, the battle's not done. Sometimes it's. Oh, we got it finished. We built this or we did this or we see the, that particular program go forward. We can rest now. That's exactly where you'll... By the way, that can happen in your own personal life too. You might see some great spiritual victory. Something you've been praying for. Something that you've been hoping in and all of a sudden God gives it to you. And what's the tendency as a human? <sighs> no, no, you've got to still be vigilant. Because again, these Jews were more loyal to Tobiah. They were traitors to Nehemiah and the Jews. Which meant they were traitors to God and his purposes. There's an enemy in the camp. So though you experience great victory today, you must still be on guard. I think that's why Ephesians talk about And it's Ephesians 6 where it's the Ephesian armor. But at the end of that particular passage, it says this, Having done all, stand. Though you put on the armor, having done all that in prayer, and, and you have the sword of the Spirit, having done all what? Stand. Stand. you got to keep standing. You've got to keep vigilant. Matthew 26, 41. Remember, uh, Jesus in the garden, the couple dis- uh, disciples are there. And what does he tell them? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What did they do? What did they do? thought so, He reminded them again. What did they do? <laughs> Do you not learn? But that word watch, both of them watch and pray are both in the imperative. Have strict attention. Pay attention. <coughs> know where you're at. i got to know where I'm at. What are my temptations? What are the things that easily beset me like Hebrews 12? I've got to be on guard. Not only against my, my own temptations. Why? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Like what Andrew Bonar, he died early, back I think in the 1700s. But anyways, he said this: Let us be wa- let us be as watchful after the victory as we as before the battle. Let us be as watchful after the victory as we were before the battle even began. So we have to be on guard as far as our own personal temptations. First Peter five though also reminds us that we have an adversary. He says, "Be sober minded." Be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. By the way, that's sober-minded. Um, one of the um, translations, you could say this, be calm. By the way, if like like today, like the doors were shut and that one door was open and they released a lion in here, would you be calm? <laughs> I'd probably be run over <laughs> He's old. Throw him out. <laughs> I mean, think about, you know, <laughs> yeah. Be sober-minded means listen. Don't go, don't go chaotic here. Just get focused on on your enemy, your adversary, the devil. Sure, he's seeking to devour, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Right. So. There's nothing to fear. We serve the greater. Okay. Acts 20, Give me. Let me give you one other. It says, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he, he warns them, a godly group of men, a plurality of elders overseeing the Ephesian church. Uh, Ephesus, you know, from the Church of the Revelation, there was a the first church mentioned, probably the hub church of that whole area of Asia Minor. But this is what he tells them. He's never going to see them again. He warns them. He says, listen, I know this is going to happen. And he says in verse 28, Therefore take heed. That word take heed means devote thinking to it. Okay? Take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this. I I know this. I, I can mark it down. You can... You can bring it to the bank. I know this. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. This is people. People are going to come in among you. Not sparing the flock. Also, not only people come in from outside, but also from among your own selves. Men will arise and speak perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be on guard at this church. We've got to be on guard in our own personal life. By the way, if you're a leader, maybe you're an elder, you're a deacon, you have to be on guard in your own personal life. Sometimes we think of leadership like this. You know, I want to be an elder, I want to be an elder. First Timothy says, you know, i got to qualify. And then they finally recognize, by the way, it says in that text that it's the Holy Spirit that makes you, and that calls you to that position of overseer, right? So it's not like I choose it. It should be him appointing. That's how it should work. But sometimes we think of this. Ah, now I'm an elder. No. You're only an elder as long as you're qualified. You can become disqualified. You're only a deacon as long as you're qualified. You can become disqualified. Isn't that true? We forget that part. We always think, well, once an elder, always an elder. Once a deacon, well, if they choose, as long as they're qualified, you've got to guard yourself. You as a parent, you as a father, you as a husband, wife, well, we've got to be vigilant. Sometimes we think that no matter that the strides we have made in our life could never go backwards. We must protect the advances that have been made. We must protect the advances. And so Nehemiah is saying, yeah, the wall's done, but there's still the enemy there. We've got to be vigilant. Now we go to chapter seven. And I see in time's running out. So we're you know what's interesting as I was reading commentaries there was at least two of the commentaries that didn't even mention chapter 7. It just went from chapter 6 to 8. Like, this didn't matter. Like, there was nothing, well, this is, you know, nothing worth talking about here. I think we can draw some things out, though. And it goes along this flow of be vigilant, be watchful, uh, protect. Protect the advances that have already been made. And in verse 1, he says this, Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, by the way, he personally didn't, but he was overseeing, and the gatekeepers and the singers and Levites had been appointed, or this, that had been, that already happened. And I think here he's enlisting leadership. He's enlisting leadership. By the way, the gatekeepers, I'll just highlight one, because we'll see them in, I think, verse 3 again. Very important position, gatekeepers. They say in, the, uh, in China, the Great Wall that was built, four times China was invaded by their enemies. All four times, the reason they were able to get through the uh, Great Wall wasn't because they destroyed the Great Wall or went up over the Great Wall. It was because the gatekeeper was bribed and they allowed the enemy to come right through the door. See, the, the wall is only as good as the gatekeeper. So I think he mentions these people and saying, you know, these are all critical positions. The wall is built, but we've got to have protections in within, right? So he gives some general categories, but in verse 2, or yeah, verse 2, he gives a specific appointment. And I gave my brother Hanai, and again, I think that's his actual brother that we saw in chapter 1, verse 2. And Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. I think what he's doing here is he's given two different positions. One is a civil leader of Jerusalem. That's Hanai, his brother. And then the governor of the castle would be the military commander. That word castle could be also translated fortress. Why? Why? Why did he give it to those two people? Well, was it because of nepotism? He's my brother. I wondered if you might have thought of that at times. I mean, like, why did Bill Baker become an elder? Was it because he was related to Bob Baker and Lee Ryan? Please give me a pronounced no. (laughs) No, because he had a heart. God called him, and he's qualified. By the way, which brings to a point: some of you are qualified, and perhaps the Lord is tugging on your heart. Are you willing to come forward? Not nepotism. Not because he was related. But let me think about this guy, Hanani. He would have grown up in the same house as Nehemiah. Probably had the same values as Nehemiah. He's the guy that came from Jerusalem back to Susa, two-month travel to let Nehemiah know what happened. He was a faithful man. He was a godly man. By the way, if you're a godly man, a faithful man, just because you're... Qual- By the way, there should be a lot of men who are qualified, according to 1 Timothy 3, but may not desire uh, to rule... And when I say rule, ruling is not about power. You know what the main, in the New Testament, you know what ruling really is all about? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Say it louder. Sure. Say it louder. Sure. <laughs> See, the world would say ruling has to do with power. That is so unbiblical. But if God knocks on your heart, please answer the call. And your name does not have to end with Ryan. Or Baker. Now, actually, we have Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say a Wreck, I said Rock. Steve Ruck, And uh, Annie Norris. And uh, who else? Yes, no, Michael Stewart. <laughs> oh, and John Prince. Um, boy, but you know what? We really do need more men. Who, if the Lord's calling you to be an elder or a deacon... Or just say, you know what? I don't even want to ruin those ways, but I want to. I want to serve. We just need men and also women. But you know, I was talking in those particular. Okay, I kind of. I that's a, a rabbit trail. Okay, but notice why he he appoints them. Last part of verse two. For he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. Now he's talking about um, Hananiah. Why? Because he already knew Hananiah, his brother. Okay, but he says, listen, I appointed these men. Because they were faithful. They were loyal. And then NIV says they were men of integrity. Literally a man of truth. When they spoke, you know what they said was true. But not only did their mouth speak truth, their life spoke consistency. That's integrity. I think it was the uh, late Bob Jones Sr. He used to always say this. The greatest ability is dependability. You want to get someone in leadership, you've got to make sure you can depend on them. These were men he could depend on. So the first thing is, he enlisted leadership. The second is, his change of leadership structure. He appointed two people. By the way, those two people also would have been over, there was two more people, and I'm trying to remember, I think it's in chapter 3, where it talks about one was, uh, let's see here, I shouldn't, I have it somewhere where it says they were uh, in charge of the half, half of Jerusalem and the other one was in charge of half of Jerusalem. Uh, I, got, I don't see it. Oh, it's in chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 12. Their names were the Rafiah and Saluam. Why do I bring that up? Because he appoints his brother as ruler, but then these men would have been under them and then the, you know, the other people. Now, But that's a change in structure. Remember what happened when he first came to Jerusalem? There was about 40 units. When we went through chapter 3, there was about 40 units there. 40 different uh, people who were leading, constructing pieces of the wall. Pieces of the wall. Pieces of the wall. Nehemiah, they were directly responsible to Nehemiah at that point. But now that the wall is done, this is what a good leader will do. A good leader will say, okay, now that part is done. And now he starts breaking it up. And he's saying, you know what, I'm going to be governor, but you two are going to be responsible for Jerusalem so that like the the uh, the chart like a flow chart where it's, it used to have him with 40 people directly responsible now it's him two people responsible and under them two responsible and then everyone else i was just listening to the it was a secular program actually but they were talking about the models of leadership somehow it just kind of and they say in in a corporate world uh, the uh, people have figured out that the idea, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if one of you are in the, but they say the in the corporate world, they figure that uh, uh, like a CEO is going to be directly hands-on to nine people. Not 25, nine. And then those each, that nine to 10 is the most you can really be um, uh, effective with, I guess is the word. So that's what you see him do. He got through the crisis, 52 days, wall build up. Now he's starting to delegate, starting to delegate. That's a good uh, management principle. Theodore Roosevelt, he was a great president, apparently. (laughs) I didn't know him personally, but, you know, everything I've kind of read about Teddy, Big Hunter, you know, he had his issues. But this is what he said about leadership. Quote, The best executive is the one who has the sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done, and self-restrain enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. If there was one thing that the Lord has taught me in the last few months it's exactly right there: I have a tendency to meddle. I'm a meddler, and my name is John Prince, and I'm a meddler. <laughs> Wait a second. Is this all about growth or not? So don't be coming back to me like six years from now and say, you're a meddler. You sa- yeah, I'm saying I was. No, I guess I said I am, but yeah, no. <laughs> Leadership structure changed. Okay, number three, he delegated responsibility with clear guidelines. Look at verse three. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. By the way, normally the, the gates would be open at, uh, you know, when the sun was rising. No, no, until the sun is hot. Why? Because all the enemies out there, this is wisdom here. If we open it up at at sunrise, the gatekeeper is going to be there, the enemy is going to be able to walk right in, people are going to be sleeping, you know, like, you know, how effective are you at six in the morning? No, let it get hot. And whereas they used to just allow the guard for a while, and then, you know, he might go home, no, no, no. He has to be there, look at this. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the, and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, they're going to be walking the walls, and some in front of their own homes. Oh, well, he got them real personal there. They not only help build their homes, now they have to protect it. You know, talk about ownership. See, he, he he gave them, he didn't just assign, he didn't just point out two people and say, okay, you're faithful, now I want you to lead. He gave them parameters. We talked about that in chapter 3. If you're going to delegate, you've got to have at least three things. And I said, we should be rappers. R A P R A P. You give the responsibility. You give the what? Authority to accomplish the responsibility and the... Parameters, R.E.P. You got to do that. So he put faithful, strong men in the positions, but they let he let them do their job without meddling. But he gave them direction. Gave them direction. Need strong men. Ted A- Engstrom in uh, 1986 or 76. This was what 30, 40 years ago. He said this. I think it's still true, though. Quote, we see the tragedy of weak men in important places. That is a tragedy. Weak men in important places. You don't want to get there. Or as he said this, little men in big jobs. And let's say this, amen and amen to this. If we're going to see someone lead the church, they better be someone of character, right? Second thing he does, he establishes citizenship. He establishes citizenship. He wants to bring people into the city. Verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. There's nobody populating it. They had moved to their own cities. Why? Because it was in disarray. Verse 5, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. I found the book of genealogy. That's That would date back 100 years before when they first came out of uh, Babylon, of those who came up the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. That, that list that then we will not cover, by the way, we're not going to cover all those 70. You're not going to go like, oh man, this is going to go to three o'clock. No, but you, that exact list, as far as the number, I think it was 42,360, is found exactly in Ezra 2 as well. Only to say this, once you get the wall done, you got to make sure you get people inside the city that are loyal to Jehovah. That's why he went through all that. And and by the way, it breaks up like you have the original leaders, verses 6 and 7. You have the Jews who are laymen, verses 8 through 38. You have the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, the descendants of the servants of Solomon. And then in verses 61 to 65, you have those whose ancestry was questionable. (coughs) And he said, basically, you're going to have to wait till the Urim and Thurim From a priest, it shows whether or not you're really part of the lineage of a Jew. Didn't know if they belonged. Did they truly belong to Israel? Because the whole point was, we don't want to finish the wall and then populate Jerusalem with people who are not Jews. That's the whole point of that, those 70-some verse, 60-some verses. And then finally, let's just look at it quickly, encouraging Worship. Sacrifice starts in verse seventy. Now, some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governors gave the governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks der- 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 of gold, and fifty basins, and thirty priestly garments, and five hundred mina of silver. And honor. oh, and then then verse seventy one, heads of the fathers, and then verse seventy two, the rest of the people they gave. So you have the leaders giving, you have the governor giving, the heads of the house giving, the rest of the people gave. Verse 73 73 says why. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their ancestors' ancestral towns, but were able to serve the God of heaven. That's why they gave. And you say, well, how much was all that? Well, James Boyce, an excellent expositor, in 1990, said, according to those gold prices and silver prices, which were around what 300, he, he, he estimated around five million dollars they gave. Now, gold is no longer 300 an ounce. If you can find it at 300 an ounce it, buy it. It's about what 1,200. And silver is no longer four dollars an ounce. it's what? About 20. In today's terms, they gave about $20 million. Now, why am I saying that? That's sacrificial. These are exiles. These are people that are not, these are people that gave sacrifice for the worship of God. And I thought to myself, boy, what a lesson that is for us. Do you sacrifice for the, for the worship of God? You give. Do you give? We are—we're not, not told to give a tithe. We are told to give out of the good, out of the the uh, the overflow of our heart. It's—it's it's called grace giving. So again, question: Do you give? Well, another question is this: Do you belong? I was thinking, now how can I transition to communion? Well, We had those people in—I in, uh, think verse sixty-six. They didn't know if they're true Jews. They didn't know if they belonged. They couldn't go to the city. They couldn't go in the city. They could not serve. Why? Because they didn't know if they belonged. Isn't it great that we know that we belong? Now, what do you mean belong? It says in uh, John one, verse twelve. But as many as received them, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to what? Become children of God. Question: Do you belong to God? Have you ever received his son for forgiveness of sin? Not only are you then forgiven, but you are placed into the family of God. Let me say, this communion is not for grace. You don't don't receive communion so that you get more grace before God. Everything has been given us for life and godliness. By whom? By Christ himself, right? But the question has to be asked, do you belong? Do you belong to God through his son Jesus Christ, because you've received him for forgiveness of sin. Then you are a child of God. But the other thing I was thinking about belong, you know, because those people did not have it written down that they were connected as a Jew, they could not serve. For us as Christians, it goes like this because we belong, we've been placed into the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says that each one of us, therefore, have been given a gift, what? For the common good. Because you belong to Jesus Christ, if you do indeed belong to Jesus Christ, you're not only part of his family, but now you're expected to serve in his family to his children. And the question as you go before the, the communion table is this, are you united with that purpose in your own life? Or do you have the gift... And God has given you something to do in the body, but you've said, you know, I'm too busy. It's too much about me, not you. And you're not using it. If at that point, I would say this, either repent of that or do not take communion, because that's disobedience. Isn't that disobedience? It's disobedient to say, I'm a part of God's family, but I am not willing to serve God's people. And the third thing is this. If indeed you belong to God through... So the sacrifice of Christ, relation in Christ. And yes, I am serving Him. Are you giving towards the worship of Him? Again, giving not only, and I don't mean just the church. I'm saying, are you sacrificial in the way you give? I'm not just talking church here. I'm saying, God wants us to release what is on this earth for Him. And sometimes we just say, well, it's not about a tithe. And we, and we maybe preach that real hard. Why? Because, why? Why do they say it so loud? Because, I, because it's really in the hearts to say, I don't want to give. But again, God took this group and he said, you know what? You belong. The genealogy there, you can serve. And at the end, what do you see? You see everybody from the leader right down through the heads of the homes to the people themselves. Everyone said, you know what? I love God so much. I want to give. That's a natural response of worship. A natural response. Just a response of worshiping God himself is what? I want to give. I want to give what I have. I want to give my gifts. I want to give my time. I want to give my ability. I'm even willing to give my money. That's the least of. Because why? Why? Because I love God. I love Jesus Christ. I love everything that he did for us. Isn't that true? Where would you be without Jesus Christ? We're going to come before the tables thanking him for all those things. And again, I trust that you'll prepare your heart so you may bow your heads and ushers come forward as we take communion together.